Welcome to the place where people of faith find real answers. We believe women deserve more than just religious band-aids for their most difficult and destructive relationships. And now for today's episode of Relationship Truth Unfiltered. Last time on Relationship Truth Unfiltered, we heard part one of Leslie's interview with Gretchen Baskerville, author of the book Life-Saving Divorce. We learned that God does care about women, and he has from the beginning of time. In fact, he put a number of requirements in the Old Testament about caring for even what was considered the lowliest of women in that culture. Today, we're going to continue to unpack what God has to say about marriage and divorce, things you've never been taught in the church. We'll answer questions like, Is divorce always harmful to kids? Is staying for the kids always the right thing to do? And is divorce only permitted when there's sexual infidelity? And finally, how do you respond if you're being judged or attacked for leaving a destructive marriage? So here is the second part of Leslie Vernick's interview with special guest Gretchen Baskerville. You know, I think some people come at it from, well, well, that was the Old Testament. Jesus said marriage is a permanent covenant and you can't, no man should separate that. So how do you right. tackle those differences? I mean, David Instone Brewer does a great job of, of describing this. And I, I have it also in my video on God's protection of women in the Bible. But basically the religious leaders, uh, for example, in Matthew 19, were deliberately trying to trick Jesus and endanger his life by pulling him into a discussion on the meaning of Deuteronomy 24, one through four. And they were asking him, do you side with the rabbinic school of Shammai that says that Deuteronomy 24 is only talking about sexual immorality? Or do you side with the rabbinic school of Hillel that says Deuteronomy 24 means sexual immorality or any other reason you don't like your wife? And Jesus said, no, Deuteronomy 24 is referring to sexual immorality. Now, it's interesting. You and I probably were not brought up to to know this little tidbit of biblical and Jewish background. But this has been known for well over a hundred years. I found a commentary from 1840, 1840, talking about this specific event, talking about the school of Shammai and Hillel and Jesus facing off with the Pharisees who are trying to get him to take a position on Deuteronomy 24. Now, here's what's so interesting. Jesus' own cousin had just been killed over his opposition of King Herod Antipas's marriage of his brother's wife. So this was the Pharisees trying to do Jesus in. If Jesus came out strongly about divorce, Jesus could be in danger of being killed by Herod Antipas himself. But Jesus did indeed say, Deuteronomy 24 is about sexual immorality, not just simply divorcing a woman because she burned your toast. One of the things that I find is kind of hypocritical in our churches is that oftentimes we'll say, well, you know, Exodus 21, 10 through 11 and Deuteronomy 24, they don't really apply anymore. Those are Old Testament verses. Mm -hmm. And yet, What verse do they cling to? Malachi 2.16, the God hates divorce verse. 
and they view Malachi 2.16 as the traditional view that has always existed. The problem is that's absolutely not true. The interpretation God hates divorce was invented by King James I of England and his translators. Prior to that time, it had never been interpreted as God hates divorce. The book of Malachi was written nearly 500 years before Christ. So from the time it was written to the time King James wrote his or his translating team wrote their version was 2,100 years. For those first 2,100 years from the day it was penned, it was never interpreted as God hates divorce, not by John Wycliffe, not by Martin Luther, not by John Calvin, not in the Septuagint, not by Jerome or the Vulgate. They all interpreted it as a condemnation of a man who hates his wife and just unjustly divorces her. So the King James Version was a radical departure. It went way off the ranch. The good news, how do we know what that scripture really says? Uh, Well, because we found the Dead Sea Scrolls. And the book of Malachi interpretation was finally published in the 1990s. And that is the oldest known copy of the verse. And since 1996, no new major Bible translation has used that wording. Not the ESV from Crossway not the Christian Standard Bible from Lifeway, which is the Southern Baptists. And the translators of the NIV, which was published originally in the 1980s, I think if memory serves, they actually changed their translation of that verse in their 2011 update. So So why are uh, pastors still saying it when they've been in seminary and they should have heard, hey guys, we've got an update. (laughs) That's right. They should know. They should know. If anyone listening would like to really dig into this and see what all the earlier translations said, uh, go to my website, lifesavingdivorce.com, Malachi, M-A-L-A-C-H-I, and that will give you more information about that. I kind of feel like I've really dug in there, but there's a lot. It brings us to a point, though. I think that it's really important, Gretchen, and I think Um, I would love to talk about this because I think for for many Christians, but especially Christian women, we've kind of deferred our decision-making power. We've given up our, even our intellectual power to the man above us, whether that's our husband or whether that's the pastor, whether that's the male counselor. And if they say that's what it says, we sort of take that as true without ever saying, let me check this out for myself. Does this really sound right? Does this sound like God? Does this sound like the character of God? I'm not talking about just having everybody tickle my ears and say what I want to hear. I'm saying do your work because there are many people who say the Bible says stuff, just like they said, the Bible says blacks are inferior and slaves are biblical and all the things that they said a hundred years ago, that that's not the heart of God. And so I think we need to do our homework and see, just like you did, what does the Bible really say? What is God's heart on this? Right. I mean, uh, if you are really scholarly and you're familiar with the Greek and Hebrew languages, wow, jump into David and Stone Brewer's 350 
page book on divorce and remarriage in the Bible. He edited chapter six in my book, gives you the uh, Reader's Digest condensed version of how to really look at these biblical passages. And I think that, to be honest with you, I do believe that most of our pastors are well-meaning. They don't, you know, set out to go to seminary to hurt people, but I don't think they've read all the information on this. And frankly, if they're in a denomination that doesn't condone a divorce for abuse, then they're not going to take any chances of losing their job or not being seen as being compliant with the denomination. And that's why about half of Christians who divorce, and we're talking devout volunteering church-going Christians who divorce, they actually switch to another church while they're divorcing because they don't want to deal with the judgment, the gossip, and the stigma at their home church. You really need to find support. And it's tough to do when you've got a church that's kind of locked into this mindset. And then they also tend to believe a lot of other myths like, your children will be destroyed by divorce. And we know that's not true either. 30 years of research tell us that divorce saves children when the marriage is highly toxic. Divorce is actually a net benefit. In other words, divorce is beneficial for kids where there's high conflict, high stress, high tension, high discord marriages. I think that one of the things that we're learning with brain science is that you know, we have parts of our brain that are wired for safety and there's parts of our brain that are wired for growth and development. And when you're in safety mode, when you're in fight or flight, when you're constantly in tension, your growth mindset is shut down because all of your energy physically and psychologically is geared to figuring out how to stay safe. And so if you're in a home environment or you're in a war zone or you're in any place where there's gunshots or anything that's scary, you're with an abusive person, it's it's pretty hard to stop that fight or flight kind of feeling, even if you can't do anything, it's still inside of you. And you're not moving into growth. And so children aren't learning, they're not developing, they're not maturing. And so that trauma environment, that tense environment in their lifelong learning environment, they're just not able to mature and grow as God would call them to. And so studies have shown that when there's a a lot of toxic environment and contention and fear and trembling, even if there's no outward physical abuse, there's still damage done to the development of children. Absolutely. And why didn't anyone tell us this? This has been known for 30 years. And it's shocking to me that somehow this is well known in the halls of academia, but it never trickles down to us. And instead, we we continue to hear from our churches and from Christian marriage authors, not you, not me, and from Christian organizations that divorce is universally destructive to kids. And in reality, they studied kids in various levels of toxic homes, and they found that when a parent chose to divorce and get their kid out of there, and they compared them with kids whose parents chose to stay married, the kids who in the single parent home now, the divorced home, were up to 10 times higher well-being than the kids whose parents had chosen to stay together or felt like they couldn't divorce. That's probably a better way of saying it. Right. And I think research really validates what the Bible says, because kids whose parents divorced in a I don't love you anymore and I want to find someone else, 
and a right. casual divorce and a right. non-toxic divorce when both parents are still good parents and loving and all of that, but maybe the marriage has kind of gone flat. Those kids do suffer more. Yes, absolutely. Because they're, they're missing living in a two-parent family. And there is some downside of being in a single family household and economics and all those kind of things, but not when it's compared to toxic and, you know, destructive environments. No, you're absolutely right. And this is something that we never were told. So exactly what you said, if the home is safe and accepting, divorce is a horrible thing for the kids. Mm -hmm. You know, if, if you just leave because I'm bored, Oh my goodness, those really are destructive to kids. Mm -hmm. But if there's serious marriage endangering sin going on, those divorces are actually beneficial for kids and science has documented. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's um, something that we were never told. And I don't want to make anyone feel guilty who's listening to this. We literally never knew. And so don't feel guilty that you stayed for the kids. I believe that God will truly honor that, but it's time once you realize the truth, it's, it's time to go. And, and researchers found they were studying seven-year-olds whose parents later on divorced. And they found that the seven-year-olds had behavior issues years before the divorce, because the, the kids were internalizing all the tension. They could see what was going on. They may not know details. They may not know who cheated with whom, but they could tell something was really wrong and they could tell there was bad behavior going on. And so we sometimes try to tell ourselves, well, the kids don't know. Well, yeah, they do know. I mean, not any details, but they, they sense it. Absolutely. Yeah. Let's broaden this a little bit because I think that, you know, we've talked a lot about the Bible saying, okay, infidelity is grounds for divorce. And infidelity for some churches means you have to get a picture or a video of your husband putting his thing into another woman's vagina in order to prove adultery. And we're not going to go there, but that's a very conservative point of view. But now we're broadening it to saying, what if your husband is abusive? What if he's verbally abusive? What if he's economically abusive? What is What if he's oppressive in a patriarchal, I'm the boss, it's my way or the highway kind of way. And you're dying inside, but you don't really have any proof that he's cheated on you. How do we wrestle with that biblically? How have you come to, because a life-saving divorce isn't just for a man who's been sexually unfaithful, but it's a man who's been covenantly unfaithful to his marital, marital vows. And how do you use the Bible and see the Bible extending that term unfaithfulness to mean more than just sexual intercourse with another woman. So I would suggest there are two passages of scripture we rarely look at. One is 1 Corinthians 5.11. And Paul is writing to Christians and he's saying, but now I'm writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister. That's probably someone at your church. That's someone who says all the right things. That's probably someone who knows their Bible inside and out but is sexually immoral or greedy. So those are your financial abusers, an idolater or slanderer. So those are your emotional abusers, a drunkard. Those are your addicts or a swindler. Again, that's your tricky, deceitful, usually a financial abuser. Look what Paul says. Do not even eat with such people. So you're not supposed to associate with them and you're not even supposed to eat with them. Mm 
Now I get pastors all the time who say, well, that doesn't apply to marriage. I said, it doesn't show me where that doesn't apply. If God doesn't even want these people welcome in our churches, he certainly doesn't want them in a 24 seven marriage. The other passage that I think is really important that we rarely look at is second Timothy three, one through five, but mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves. So these are the egotists, lovers of money. Okay. So these are the people who they're going to throw you under the bus for money, boastful, proud. Wow. These are the arrogant people certainly sound a lot like narcissists. They're abusive. It's not even necessarily violent. They're abusive in the things they say. There are dozens of Bible verses about staying away from angry men. They're disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love. And what is the one thing that Ephesians 5 tells men five times to do is to love their wives. Okay. They're unforgiving slanderous. Okay. So they say bad things about people. They're without self-control. So again, those are the addicts. They're brutal. Okay. There's some violence. They're not lovers of the good. They're treacherous. So they actually plot to do these things. They're rash, meaning impulsive, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness, but denying its power, have nothing to do with such people. Well, a form of godliness means they're walking around portraying themselves as Christians. Here is Paul saying, have nothing to do with such people. It doesn't say have nothing to do with such people unless you're married to them. So the Bible takes this kind of behavior really, really seriously. And if anyone would like kind of a list of the major Bible passages on divorce and on abuse, I'm sure you've got a great blog post, which they should go to first, but when they're, they're done looking at yours, go to lifesavingdivorce.com, abuse-in-bible, and that will give you all the Bible verses there. But you know, I think it's just really important to know that, that God does not approve of treacherous people. You really have to look at abuse this way. A woman has been resisting the abuse from the day it started. She has tried saying no. She's tried reasoning with him. She's tried bargaining. She's tried confronting. She's tried staying away when he's kind of in one of those moods. She's tried being perfect in how she dresses, how she looks, her weight, her cooking, everything. She's tried offering sex as a bargaining chip, even though it makes her feel degraded. She's tried setting boundaries. She's you know, resisted a million times. And there really aren't any new tactics to try. I mean, she's done your tips of speaking up, standing up and stepping back, but he just keeps going. And I think I, this is how I like defining abuse. She is married to a man who likes to get his own way by coercion or threats or the silent treatment or violence or criticism. He loves to get what he wants in sort of a brutal form, even if it doesn't involve any physical violence. He doesn't want to do it God's way. He doesn't want to be patient. 
and take the time to help and be kind to his wife. He doesn't want to take the time to understand her point of view. He doesn't want the inconvenience of being respectful to her. He doesn't want that loss of face by being grateful to her for the the talents and skills she brings. Abuse is just so much more fun and satisfying to him. It just takes no effort on his part. He likes his life this way where he commands and she jumps. And this is really the perfect life in his mind. It's really no wonder he doesn't want to change. It's right. no wonder he doesn't feel any remorse. Life works, works great for him. For him. Yeah. <laughs> and I think that's so important for our listeners to understand, because especially when you get around to when a woman finally does perhaps leave or separate or put her foot down and have some consequences come in place, he may shift tactics. All those tactics that you mentioned are his dark side, but he has a light side of tactics as well. It's called love bombing. You know, I love you. I'll bring you flowers. I promise to do this. I'll do that. You know, I can't live without you. You mean everything to me. And that sort of is like, oh, he gets it. He doesn't get it. And you'll be able to tell he doesn't get it by one simple word. No, because you said it. he wants what he wants and he'll use those coercive or oppressive techniques to get what he wants, because that's the quickest, easiest way. If he has to be nice to you to get what he wants, if he has to buy you dinner or buy you flowers to get you to go to bed with him on your anniversary, he may do that. But if you say no, or if you If he wants you to come back or he wants you to drop the divorce or he wants you to lift the consequences, whatever it is, and he's treating you really nice, if that doesn't work, then he'll switch back into the more oppressive tactics. And that's how you know he's not changed because it's not the nice tactics versus the bad tactics. There's still tactics of manipulation and coercive control. It's just a matter of, do you have a right to say no? And do you have a voice that he will respect? And if that's not going to happen and you'll have to test it when he's on the nice side, And if he doesn't respect that, then there isn't any real change. It's still the same old man trying to get what he wants in whatever way he can get what he wants. That's one of my absolute favorite teachings of yours. I remember seeing you on a video saying, when you're dating, see if he respects your no, tell him no. And I think that test is absolutely brilliant and exactly what you need to do because he can step up to the plate and love bomb you as you said kind of go through that little honeymoon part of the abuse cycle but it's not a change in attitude it's only an exterior change of behavior it's still manipulative it's still a tactic Gretchen this has been wonderful just let's let's wrap up with how do you deal with the pressure because not every Christian will agree with your interpretations of how the passages come together. And there are, you know, legitimate dialogues that we can have about interpretations of scripture and still be conservative, godly people. How do you deal with the naysayers or how, not only as an author, as a Christian woman, but also as a woman who went through a divorce, because I think we're so geared as women to want people to approve of our decision, to like us, to, you know, agree with us. And we're good. If you stay, you're going to have women who say you're a fool for staying. And if you leave, you're going to have a woman who say you're a fool for leaving. You're not going to get hundred percent approval rating. So how did you deal with the critics, both personally, as well as professionally, as you've come out with the stand? That's a great question. This is why it has to be each woman's choice. Only you know the thousands 
of very specific factors in your own life, in your personality, in your children's lives, in your situation, in your finances, in your own safety. And that's why only each individual can make that choice for themselves. But let's go on to how do I deal with criticism? Let me say right up front, and you're not going to believe this. I've almost gotten no negative attacks. I was braced just to have an onslaught. I've not had any organizations or churches attack me. I probably get an, a nasty email every once in a while, uh, definitely a few tweets or a few Facebook comments telling me I'm wrong, that I'm going to hell, that I'm an abomination. <laughs> I just hit click, delete, <laughs> but, but it's nothing like I expected. I mean, I expected bomb threats and stalkers. I mean, I haven't gotten that. Here's how I deal with it. I feel that I cannot change some people's minds. They have a bias. If I sense that they don't have what Jesus called ears to hear, and if I sense that they're hard-hearted, I just delete and block. It's not my job to change their mind. It's the Lord's job. I've had people come to me years later and say, I am so sorry I was critical of you. Now I understand. Yeah, me too. Uh, isn't it wonderful? <laughs> yeah, I mean, hey, I'll take that apology 10 years later. Absolutely. I, I like that. I find that pastors and other Christians who have empathy for abuse victims and believe them and wish there was a biblical way out love my book, as I'm sure they love your book. They know God's heart is to love and protect his children from harm. You know, Jesus came to set the captives free. God in the Exodus is in the business of rescuing people from bondage. For listeners who are getting attacks from friends and family and church, I would give this bit of advice. I would say put those people on the back burner for right now. Right now, they just aren't safe. Um, and this is why half of Christians switch churches when they divorce. They just don't want the judgmentalism and the gossip and the pressure. I'm not saying you get rid of them forever. I'm just saying distance yourself. And then I think you need to find a loving community of people who believe in life-saving divorces, like your conquer group. Because for every minute you spend wasting your time trying to convince a closed-minded person, you're depleting your own emotional and spiritual reserves that you need for yourself and for your kids. For now, just block and delete that random person or that acquaintance on Facebook. You can always change your mind later if they change theirs. But you need that margin in your life. You, Leslie, talk about the core all the time, strengthening your core. Mm -hmm. And part of strengthening your core is to put on your emotional Kevlar vest, uh, that bulletproof vest, and put up your hand and say, no, I'm not going to let you speak into my life. And that means you're not being mean to them. You just need to protect yourself and your emotions right now during this time. As I often say to people, you know, you don't have the bandwidth to go through a separation or a divorce and fight your own church. You can't do two things at once. Mm -hmm. But a lot of people in my group say, I had to divorce my husband and divorce my toxic pastor because mm -hmm. he just wasn't being supportive. I guarantee there are wonderful pastors out there who will believe you and will support you, but you have to kind of uh, look around 
And, um, you know, we could talk about that at another time. How do you find a, a church that would be supportive? Yeah, that'd be a great podcast that we can do. One thing I say to women, and I think this is true for any human being, but part of your growth through this, once you can come up for air and start your growing process versus just your survival process, is that when we need, with a capital N-E-E-D, someone to approve of us in order for us to be okay, we're in an unhealthy bent position into that person's. They have a lot of power over us. And so it's not that we don't want to have people's opinions or listen to advice or contemplate someone's feedback, but when we're scared to do what we know is the right thing for us, because someone else disapproves, then we're in an unhealthy bent position toward that person. So part of recognizing, oh my gosh, I'm caught by the fear of man. I can't make this decision because my mother's going to be mad at me or my sister's going to disapprove or my neighbor's going to criticize. Then we're, we're saying, I'm living my life in order to get your approval instead of I'm living my life, both for my own approval and for God's approval. And that's all the approval you need. And when you're trying to get everybody else to think what you're doing is okay, you're going to be in sinking sand in any issue, whether it's divorce, whether it's, should I go back to college or should I go back to work or should I homeschool my children? I remember back in the day, you know, eighties when homeschooling was all really the in thing. I'm like, this isn't for me, <laughs> but I got a lot of like, what, you're going to work. I said, yeah, I think I, I'm going to work part-time. This is not for me, but the disapproval in my peer group was big and you have to kind of be okay with that. Yeah. Absolutely. And I love how you, you're talking about authority. And my counselor turned to me and he said, who's the authority in your life? And I was shocked. I had never thought, who is my authority? Who do I report to? And I said, I think only God. And he said, good, that's a good position to be in. No one else has authority over your life. That pastor doesn't. One of the things that is really important to me is, you know, this whole concept, there's this ideology out there that says, you know, marriage is, is every marriage is holy, but I just, I really think there, there are some very unholy marriages. I think that when a home where there's deception and sexual immorality or sneakiness or abuse or coercion or neglect or indifference is not a home, home that's holy. That's not a holy marriage. And as a single mother, I was a single mom for 20 years before I remarried. Our home was holy. We had integrity. We had trustworthiness. We had reliability, kindness, sacrifice, and genuine care for one another. So I don't think that the people who we think of as authorities, they have no skin in the game. It's not their life. It's not their sanity. It's not their kids. It's not their financial stability. It's they've got absolutely nothing. They've only invested as much as it takes for five seconds to condemn you or stigmatize you. Right. you're the one who pays the entire price, you and your children. So they don't get a vote. They don't get a veto in your life. You've got to do what you think is best and the timing you think is best in your life. I love that. I love that they don't get a vote. I think they can get a voice a little bit if they are important to you and you can contemplate that and consider that but they don't get the vote because you're the one who has to live with all of the consequences of those decisions. And I think for women so often, 
we have abdicated our decision-making power to our own peril, um, to other people in our life. So is there anything else you'd like to say before we go? We've gone a long time and I really, really appreciate your time. I don't want to take advantage of that, but is there anything that we didn't say that you want to say before we go? Wow. Um, uh, here's what I want to say. There is life on the other side that God will never leave you or forsake you. I'm doing constant polls in my 3000 member uh, Facebook group, a private Facebook group. I, the last poll I did is, is at least one of your children happy you got a divorce? Did you know that almost nine in 10 of the respondents in my group said, yes, at least one of my children is glad and supportive that I got a divorce. No one ever told us that it would be like that. Another thing that no one ever told us is that when you've been in a long, unhappy, read that as abusive marriage, and it ends in divorce, it is most likely, despite what you've been told, that your next marriage will be better and happier. It's not a guarantee. One in five is not, but four in five are. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of hope about the future and get educated. Read my book, especially chapter 10 of my book, if you're looking to the future. People who leave get their health back in eight and 10 cases. Their children do better. I don't think that most Christians divorce frivolously. If your marriage was, as we said, safe and accepting, don't divorce. But if it's up there in, in the toxic and highly toxic range, research shows us that it's generally a good, a, a good decision. Will it be a good decision in your case? Only you know for sure. Only you know the various factors in your own life and personalities and situation. But if yeah. you think it's time to go, go. And we never know the outcome of everything. And so we do the best we know how. And, you know, so if we think it's time to leave and then it turns into a year of hardship, that isn't necessarily a decision that says, oh, you made a bad decision. It might be a year of hardship that you really grow and you really dig in and your kids grow and heal and are forced to do that because you're in such a bad spot, which then sets the scene for the next year and the next year and the next year. So I think sometimes we expect everything to be, if, if it's God's will, nothing bad will happen. And oh, you, no, yeah. no. I mean, you it know? took me, it took me five years to get back on my feet yeah. financially. Yeah. And researchers know that those first two years are just rugged on you and the kids. And so I think that's why we have that support group. And I'm so glad that you offer this Facebook group for women going through this. And how could they contact you for getting into this Facebook group if they're going through a divorce and they wanted some more support and help? Right. Okay. So the group is called the Life-Saving Divorce Private Group. It is all for people of faith. Look it up on Facebook and answer the four questions. And my moderators and I will check you out, make sure that you look like you're the real thing. <laughs> but it's a wonderful place where we talk about everything and you will not be jumped on. You won't be shamed. You won't be uh, stigmatized. It's full of godly people, lots of pastors, wives, all sorts of people who gave their lives to uh, serving the church and spreading the gospel who are in this group. I, I think you're just going to find it to be a wonderful, warm and inviting group of people who are moving forward in life. Gretchen, thank you so much for your generosity and sharing with our group. 
all the different passages that you wrestled with, all the different ways you have found God's love to be real and true and caring for the oppressed. And when you are in a marriage, you are the oppressed and your husband is the oppressor. And God isn't saying that's his plan for marriage or for life. And he rescues the oppressed. And so I just am so grateful for your wisdom and your willingness to share with my audience. Thanks a lot. Thank you so much, Leslie. Thank you for listening to Relationship Truth Unfiltered. Go to the show notes or go to lesliewernick.com for a free test to see if you're in an abusive relationship. And be sure to subscribe to this podcast so you don't miss an episode. Until next time, may God bless your mind, your heart, and your home.